Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. As far as we know, the children's Tylenol, the chewable, have not been implicated yet. Exactly what is going on right now, they're just assuming that it could be the cyanide-laced capsule also. The phone has been ringing off the hook at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. It's the regional poison control center for the entire Chicago area. Poison specialist Lane Olaf. Oh, we've been receiving calls uh, about once every 15 seconds. At Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's, we only have three poison lines, and they're lit up constantly ever since yesterday morning. Right now, they're telling people which lots of Tylenol are known to have contaminated capsules and checking to see if callers have displayed any symptoms of cyanide poisoning. If uh, they have that, tell them to go to the emergency room. If they don't have that and they took it yesterday, we just tell them, you're, you're probably going to have no problem with it. Just hold on to the bottles. Don't take any Tylenol extra strength for the time being until you hear otherwise. Most of what's going on here is informational. Officials here say right. if anyone has taken a cyanide-laced Tylenol capsule, well, they, they probably wouldn't it. be able to make it to the they phone to it. call. They used to. I'm Jeff Locke, CNN, at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. It's been almost 30 years now since that Tylenol scare gripped this nation. The cyanide tampering of those bottles was deadly, and today we learned of a major development in this cold case. FBI investigators are now looking at a possible link to the Unabomber. Pierre Thomas explains why. It was a national nightmare. Someone was lacing Tylenol with cyanide. Seven people murdered in Chicago in the fall of 1982. Cyanide contains Tylenol. This product may be contaminated with cyanide and should be destroyed. It dominated headlines. A nationwide search is underway today to find a man and a woman wanted for questioning in the Tylenol murders. A case that literally changed the way Americans shop. The Tylenol scare prompted the nation's first mass recall of a retail product. Tamper-proof medicines now a fact of life. Three decades later, the case remains unsolved. Now, a shot in the dark. The Unabomber terrorized the country for 18 years. You're responsible for these bombings. Injuring 23 people and killing three in a series of mail bombings. As it turns out, Kaczynski grew up in the Chicago area where the Tylenol attacks happened. Four of his bombings took place there between 1978 and 1980. Sources tell ABC News, given Kaczynski's ties to the region, the FBI requested a sample of his DNA to compare to evidence recovered in the case. Hello and welcome to episode 156 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcasts production. I have a quick question for you guys. Have you ever wondered why the medicine you buy over the counter is packaged the way it is? Sure, you'd probably say something along the lines of, it prevents people from tampering with the bottle, which would be correct. The next question I would ask is, when do you think they started making the packaging in the seal-proof way? 
you may reply with something like, probably since they started selling medicine. Unfortunately, this would be wrong. It is not a mistake to think companies have always had the safety of their consumers front and center, but this wasn't and maybe still isn't the case. Now, what if I told you the new packaging wasn't mandated until the mid-1980s? Blasphemy, you might say. But it's a sad fact that you could pretty much open a pill bottle and take one out. Or add one. Most of you know exactly where I'm going with this, and that would be the subject of this week's show. If you couldn't tell by the trailer, we are discussing the Chicago Tylenol murders. Now, in September of 1982, a 12-year-old girl and six adults around the Chicago area died suddenly and mysteriously. Now, thank you to the Associated Press, here is a pretty concise timeline of the Tylenol poisonings that began in that September of 1982, as well as how quickly some of these companies, or the company involved, acted. So September 30th, 1982, at 9.30 a.m., a Chicago-area medical official says two brothers and a 12-year-old girl died September 29th of a lethal dose of cyanide in capsules of an extra-strength Tylenol. The victims were Adam Janis, 27, Stanley Janis, 25, and Mary Kellerman. Now, two women, Mary Reiner and Mary McFarland, also of the Chicago suburbs, were pronounced dead after having taken extra strength Tylenol on September 29th. Stanley Janis, his wife, Teresa, was near death. She took two caps, she also took capsules of the pain reliever that were tainted with cyanide. Investigators said the cases were being treated as homicides, and the manufacturer, McNeil Consumer Products, recalled 4.7 million of the capsules containing the lot number MC2880. Stores nationwide began pulling the best-selling pain reliever off their shelves. So October 1st of 1982, investigators determined the extra-strength Tylenol capsules, quote, had been pried open and placed back together. This U.S. Food and Drug Administration advises consumers against taking extra-strength Tylenol after the discovery of a second contaminated batch, lot 1910MD, which also is recalled. Now, Mrs. Janice, 19, she ends up dying after being in a coma after taking the capsules from the same bottle that was responsible for killing her husband. Now, FDA investigators do find a bottle of contaminated Tylenol capsules at a drugstore in the Chicago suburb of Schaumburg. It is the first unsold bottle recovered. Now, Mayor Jaden Byrne announces the death of Paula Prince, the seventh victim and the first in the city of Chicago. The bottle found in her apartment is a 24-capsule bottle with lot number 1801MA. October 2nd, Mrs. Byrne bans the sale of Tylenol in Chicago. About 150 federal, state, and local authorities begin working on the case. Authorities say that the potassium cyanide, a poison found in school chemistry labs and metal plants, was used in the capsules, and the poison probably was placed on the shelves 36 hours before the first death. October 4th, Teresa Janis, the widow of Adam Janis, files a lawsuit seeking $15 million in damages from McNeil, its owner Johnson & Johnson, and two Jewel food stores. 
Now, Johnson & Johnson goes on to announce it stopped manufacturing the capsule form of extra-strength Tylenol on October 1st. The FDA says it's tested more than 1 million capsules of the painkiller nationwide, with no cyanide found outside of the Chicago area. So October 5th, Greg Blagg, an Orville, California man, says he became ill September 30th after taking extra-strength Tylenol capsules that were laced with strychnine. Three bottles that had been tampered with were traced to a local drugstore. Now, he did recover. So, Johnson & Johnson would go on to urge all stores nationwide to withdraw Tylenol, regular strength, and extra strength from their shelves. Fawner says the California case was probably not connected with the seven Chicago area deaths, and investigators narrow to eight or nine of the number of suspects. And that's, again, you'll see that changes as time goes on. In Washington, a government industry joint committee on product safety holds its first meeting on the possibly possibility of designing tamper-proof packaging for over-the-counter drugs. The FDA head says there is no quick fix to this problem. On December 6, 1982, first shipments of new tamper-resistant packages of Tylenol capsules are shipped to retailers. On February 6, fast forward two years, 1984, deadline for drug makers to get non-tamper-resistant packages off store shelves. Most manufacturers jumped well ahead of the de deadline. Monday, February 10th, 1986, authorities announced that Diane Ellsroth, 23, of Peekskill, New York, died Saturday at the Yonkers home where her boyfriend, Michael Natarincola, lived with his parents and brother. Thursday, two bottles of cyanide, tain, and Tylenol were found in stores near the one where the pills that killed Miss Ellsworth were purchased. The state health commissioner banned the sale of all Tylenol capsules throughout New York, and a commissioner for the Food and Drug Administration issued a nationwide warning against Tylenol capsules. Now, again, this is years later, and the Tylenol murders basically changed the way anybody consumes medication and that's what led to the tamper-proof pill bottle and you know it's been 35 years and this mystery is still unsolved as everyone was trying to figure out what the hell was going on now we're going to jump back into what was going on during this sort of uh hellacious period of time in the city of chicago so while people were trying to figure out what was going on it was a public health nurse named Helen Jensen who began talking about chance that there could be something possibly wrong with the Tylenol pills that everyone had taken. Now, the medical examiner, Dr. Edmund Donahue, wondered if this was possible, if there might be a poison like cyanide inside the Tylenol. So he called for a forensic investigator who was on the scene and over the phone asked him to smell the bottles. Quote, the thing is, we just happened to have somebody out there who was capable of smelling cyanide, Donahue said. Quote, only about half of the population can smell cyanide, and it's a genetically inherited trait. That's an interesting thing. Classically, it's described as smelling like the odor of bitter almonds. But our investigator said, quote, yeah, he could smell cyanide in the Tylenol bottles. Now, Donahue examined the bodies, looking to see if cyanide was, in fact, inside. Now, he noticed a few things. Now, their skin was red, and they also had this strange smell, just like bitter almonds. Shocking. 
And when Donahue looked inside their stomachs, he could see that the lining was eroded. And that's not an acidic inside the stomach anymore, which really kind of set him thinking that this is pretty weird. So he put everything together, and that's when he began looking at cyanide poisoning. And again, the murders impacted not just the city or the country, but the world. And an editorial in the North Bay Nugget in Ontario, Canada in 1982 does a good job of summing up the fear people were feeling at the time. Quote, The Tylenol murders are a manifestation of the human capacity for evil that distinguishes the species from all other animals who kill randomly, but none as impersonally. The Tylenol murders also strike at the foundation of modern Western society. It is a society based upon the concept that majority of the people are honest and decent. Stores display merchandise within easy reach of all, assuming that only a few will steal airline passengers, pick up their bags at unguarded depositories. Vast volumes of business are conducted by mutual trust without signed contracts. So this guy just goes on and on. It is a system that works well enough, but it is ideal for maniacs such as the Tylenol killer or killers. Society will have to be on guard. Drug companies, indeed. All companies selling products consumed by humans and easily accessible will have to drastically revise their packaging. In the final analysis, there is little or nothing that can be done to protect society from madmen except eternal vigilance by us all. But vigilance is not enough. Society no longer hangs, draws, and quarters. It no longer impales criminals upon stakes or engages in barbaric punishments that were common a few hundred years ago. Western society no longer demands an eye for an eye. All right, so here we have a reader or whatever writing into their local newspaper, and you can tell he's fired up. And... He's not wrong because we do live in this sort of like give and take society where we do trust people to, you know, give us an Uber or whatever. And that's if you would have said that 20 years ago, like, oh, yeah, we just picked up somebody on an app. You'd be like, oh, this is weird. And so, yeah, it happens. So anyway, history.com did a great piece. Now, they always do good stuff, but. They went on to say, The manufacturer of Tylenol, Johnson & Johnson, immediately cut all production and advertisements of Tylenol and advised the public not to take any medicine with acetaminophen in it. After the discovery that only capsules had been tampered with, the company offered to replace all purchased capsules. Due to this incident, stricter standards to prevent pharmaceutical tampering were soon implemented, such as tamper-resistant packaging and tampering with medications becoming a federal crime. Novel idea. Another big change was going from a capsule to a solid caplet in the shape of a capsule, as the capsules were found easier to tamper with without any noticeable signs of tampering. So, as the investigations began, Johnson & Johnson received several letters from James William Lewis claiming he was the one who tampered with the capsules, and he demanded $1 million to stop. Because he and his wife lived in New York at the time and had no ties to Chicago, police didn't really find much credible evidence to suggest that Lewis was actually the culprit. He was, however, arrested for extortion and, guess what, served 13 years in prison. 
Other suspects arose, but police were not able to tie any of them to the murders. From a study done by the Oklahoma University, they wrote, Before the crisis, Tylenol was the most successful over-the-counter product in the United States, with over 100 million users. Tylenol was responsible for 19% of Johnson & Johnson's corporate profits during the first three quarters of 1982. Tylenol accounted for 13% of Johnson & Johnson's year-to-year -year sales growth and 33% of the company's year-to-year -year profit growth. Tylenol was the absolute leader in the painkiller field, accounting for a 37% market share, outselling the next four leading painkillers combined that included Anison, Bayer, Bufferin, and Excedrin. Had Tylenol been a corporate entity unto itself, profits would have placed it in the top half of the Fortune 500. So, for reasons that are still unknown, a disturbed person decided to replace some of these extra-strength capsules with cyanide-laced capsules, and they resealed the packages and deposited them on the shelves. Now, remember the part of the episode where I mentioned the packaging wasn't really sealed. It was pretty easily manipulated. I mean, it may have had a child-proof top, but it definitely was not... Uh, what you see today or any day after 1984. So consumer products, you know, that made the Tylenol pills, um, they had to explain to the world what the hell just happened. And it was really great. I mean, it was a crisis situation for this company. And regardless of what Johnson & Johnson has done in recent years, it is something that they are actually commended for in a lot of ways because it is one of the things that saved a lot. I mean, I don't know if it saved lives because they only found one other bottle, but what they did is it saved their reputation because they would really go on to become known as uh, ones to act if an issue came up. So... Johnson & Johnson chairman James Burke reacted to the negative media coverage by forming a seven-member strategy team. And the team's strategy guidance from Burke was first, quote, how do we protect the people? And second, quote, how do we save this product? The company's first actions were to immediately alert customers and consumers across the nation via the media to not consume any type of Tylenol product. And I mentioned that they did this. They told consumers not to resume using the product until the extent of the tampering could be determined. Johnson & Johnson, along with stopping all of the production and advertising of Tylenol, withdrew all Tylenol capsules from the shelves in Chicago and the surrounding area. Now, by withdrawing all Tylenol, even though there was little chance of discovering more cyanide-laced tablets, the study goes on to state that Johnson & Johnson showed that they were not willing to take a risk with the public's safety, even if it cost the company millions of dollars. The end result was the public viewing Tylenol as the unfortunate victim of a malicious crime. Now, Johnson & Johnson also used the media, both PR and paid advertising, to communicate their strategy during the crisis. Johnson & Johnson used the media to issue a national alert to tell the public to stop using their products, as well as they created a hotline, a 1-800 hotline, and this was a toll-free line for news organizations to call and receive pre-taped daily messages with updated statements about the crisis. Now, they also had another number to call for any information regarding the 
investigation. Before the crisis, Johnson & Johnson had not actively sought press count coverage, but as a company in crisis, they recognized the benefits of open communications in early and clearly disseminating warnings to the public as well as the company's stand. Again, this is from the study from Oklahoma University. Several major press conferences were held at corporate headquarters within hours and in internal video. Staff set up a live television feed via satellite to the New York metro area, and this allowed all press conferences to go national. Jim Burke got more positive media exposure by going on 60 Minutes and The Donahue Show and giving the public his command messages. Quick note, Phil Donahue grew up four streets away from, away from where I grew up. Johnson & Johnson communicated their new triple safety seal packaging, a glued box, a plastic sear over the neck of the bottle, and a foil seal over the mouth. Now, again... You all probably think this is just completely normal, but this didn't even change until the middle 80s. Like, that's insanity. I think anybody who was taking pills back then, it's like, what the hell were you actually taking? It's really hard to believe that it took some psychopath that long to figure out, wow, I could really screw up somebody's life. And it's really weird. <laughs> I mean... You know, the initial media reports, uh, they, they focused on the deaths of the American citizens from a con trusted consumer product. And, you know, in the beginning, the product tampering was not known. Thus, the media made a very negative association with the brand name. All three networks led with the Tylenol story on the first day of the crisis. CBS put a human face on the story, which contained the following, quote, when 12-year-old Mary Kellerman of Elk Grove Village, Illinois, awoke at dawn with cold symptoms... Her parents gave her one extra strength Tylenol and sent her back to bed. Little did they know they would wake up at 7 a.m. to find their daughter dying on the bathroom floor. Wow, that's pretty heavy. The print media weighed in with equally damaging headlines. Time magazine, quote, poison madness in the Midwest. Newsweek, quote, the Tylenol scare. And the Washington Post, the Tylenol killer or cure. So, the media was not only focused on the deaths, but it was also pervasive. Throughout the crisis, over 100,000 separate news stories ran in U.S. newspapers and hundreds of hours of national and local television coverage. A post-crisis study by Johnson & Johnson said that over 90% of the American population had heard of the Chicago's deaths due to cyanide-laced Tylenol within the week, the first week of the crisis. Two news clipping services found over 125,000 clippings on the Tylenol story. One of the services claimed that this story had been given the most U.S. news coverage since the assassination of JFK. That's insane. Media reporting would continue to focus on Tylenol killing, killing people until more information about what caused the deaths was made available. In most crises, media will focus on the sensational aspects of the crisis and then follow with the cause as they learn more about what happened. And having worked in the media and being a producer in television, yes, that is a true thing. There is a lot of manipulation that goes on, and you throw a lot at the wall and you see what sticks. And on that note, let's take a moment to hear from the products that help keep this show running. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We all know relationships take work, especially the most important one you have in your life. And that's the relationship with yourself. I mean, we all will go help someone in a time of need and we'll go out of our way to treat other people well. But we have to take a moment and recognize, do we always give ourselves the same treatment? I know that I go out of my way to take time each day to focus on myself. I mean, it's just part of my routine. And this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. Listeners of this show know I'm a huge proponent of mental health. I've been personally in therapy since I was a kid. So, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't even have to see someone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash who. That's B-E-T-T. E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash who. All right, we are back. So clearly with a case this big, there's going to be a lot of potential suspects. And, uh, you know, the manufacturers were ruled out because of the bottles came from different pharmaceutical companies. And all the deaths had occurred in Chicago or the surrounding area. But you did have two suspects. The first suspect was Roger Arnold. Now, I believe this is from a Penn State University study on the Tylenol murders. Now, suspect number one, Roger Arnold. He was a 40-year-old, 48-year-old dock worker. He was overheard saying some, quote, suspicious things about the Tylenol murders in a bar, which is always a great place to talk about crimes you've committed. Was this a soap opera? Anyway, While the police were questioning him, while the police were questioning him, they found several connections. He worked at a jewel warehouse where Mary Reiner's father, Adam Janis, bought his Tylenol from a jewel convenience store. Mary Reiner bought her bottle from a store that is right across from the psychiatric ward where Arnold's wife was. The offers found how-to crime books in Arnold's home, and there was evidence of chemistry as well. Now, I don't know what that means, but anyway... It says, oh yeah, the evidence of chemistry included breakers and other equipment, along with a bag of powder that turned out to be potassium carbonate. Arnold refused to take a polygraph, and there was never enough evidence to prosecute him. Arnold went on to have a nervous breakdown from the attention in the media. He blamed everything on a bar owner, Martin Sinclair, or Marty Sinclair. In 1983, during the summer, Arnold shot and killed a man named John Stanisha. He thought Stanisha was Sinclair. Roger Arnold received 30 years for 
for second degree murder but only served 15. He died in June 2008. Uh, not going to shed tears over that one. And then you have the great James Lewis, the ultimate con man. Well, James Lewis was a tax accountant. He sent in a photocopy of a handwritten letter to Johnson & Johnson that reads, Johnson & Johnson, parent company of McNeil Laboratories. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide with both potassium and sodium into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly, takes so very little and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account number 8449597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local authorities. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. Authorities know it was from Lewis because it had its fingerprints on it. Wow, this guy was not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. So, guess what? An arrest warrant was issued on December 13th, and he was spotted at a public library in New York. And that ended the manhunt. <laughs> The crazy story continues to get crazier. The bank account Lewis listed did not belong to him. It actually belonged to Frederick Miller McCahey. Lewis believed McCahey had stiffed his wife out of $511 in change. This clown Lewis only included McCahey's bank account in hopes the blame would go to him and expose the theft. It had nothing to do with the murders. But the letter wasn't the only piece of evidence that led police to think he would be possibly capable of committing this crime. When Lewis was 19, he decided to chase his mother around the house with an axe. In 1966, he was committed to a state mental hospital after he overdosed on anison, which again is like Tylenol. While he was in the mental hospital, he was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. Lewis later claimed those acts were his attempts to escape the Vietnam draft. Lewis was charged and acquitted for the murder of Raymond West. West had found, been found dismembered in his own home in the summer of 1978. After the murder experience, Lewis and his wife launched a business venture that attempted to import pill-making machines to India. Well, needless to say, that was a short-lived venture. In 1981, Lewis was suspected of using fake addresses and mailboxes to falsify credit applications. The police found plenty of also other incriminating evidence in his home. So Lewis and his wife fled Chicago and lived under fake names for almost a year until the Chicago Tylenol murders. Now, Lewis bought Amtrak tickets for Chicago to New York on September 4th, 1982. The Tylenol killer would have had to plant the cyanide pills, pills close to the consumption date, or else the cyanide would have eaten through the pills. Some investigators said that it was possible that the perpetrator flew into O'Hare, rented a car, planted the poison, then left Chicago. Surveillance from one of the drugstores showed a man who could have been Lewis, but they didn't have a positive ID and no one would, 
could place Lewis in Chicago closer to when the deaths occurred. Again, the deaths occurred in late September. Now, law enforcement did not have enough to prosecute Lewis, but his letter did lead him to being convicted of extortion. Way to go, James! And guess what? He got sentenced to 20 years in prison, which he only served 13. But while he was in prison, Lewis did offer his help. This help included going into bizarre detail about how someone could be injecting the capsules with a lethal, lethal dose of cyanide. Now, Lewis was released in 1995, and he even wrote a fictional book in 2010. And uh, guess what that book was about? Poisoned water. So, kind of weird. Eh, kind of weird. I don't know. It's a little weird. But when he did do interviews about his book, any questions about the Tylenol murders were actually directed to his lawyer. So, James Lewis, crazy guy? Absolutely. The Tylenol murderer? Probably not. So, you're going to have not only a bunch of suspects. Well, we don't have a lot, bunch of suspects, but you're going to have a lot of copycats. So... The study that we were referencing from Penn State goes on to discuss how immediately following the Tylenol murders, there were hundreds of copycats. Some of these copycats also poisoned pills with rat poison or hydrochloric acid. Three more deaths resulted in 1986 from capsules that had been tampered with. I've mentioned this earlier. One was a woman who died in Yonkers, New York, after taking an extra-strength Tylenol pill that was laced with cyanide. Two was Susan Snow and Bruce Nickel in Washington State when they ingested Excedrin capsules that had cyanide in them. Nickel's wife, Stella, was arrested and convicted for both murders. Very interesting. Number three, Kenneth Ferries, a University of Texas student, died in his apartment after taking a cyanide-laced Anison capsule. His death at first was labeled a homicide but the medical examiner eventually changed the ruling to suicide, saying that he obtained cyanide from the lab that he worked at. Also in 1986, Incaparin was recalled after a hoax in Chicago and Detroit. The recall resulted in a sales drop and the withdrawal of the pain reliever from the market. Investigators at the time said whoever was responsible took Tylenol packages from the store, injected the contents with cyanide, and then put them back on the shelves. As I mentioned before, this event changed how we take medicine. According to a KERA investigation, quote, After the deaths in Chicago, Johnson & Johnson did something that turned the drug industry on its head and affects the way we take pills today. They changed packaging and the actual pills. It sounds like a trivial change, but the switch from capsules to caplets affected other drug companies too. After Johnson & Johnson upgraded their packaging and adopted caplets, the whole industry rebooted. Dr. Howard Markle, a University of Michigan professor specializes in the history of medicine, said, quote, I can't think of a single scary event that affected so much change in the physical presentation and the change in packaging of a medication other than the Tylenol scare. Only a professor would put out a quote like that. This led to a change in the law. In 1983, the federal anti-tampering bill was introduced that made it a felony to tamper with medicines. Some people still call it the Tylenol bill. 
The same bill made it an FDA requirement for medicines to be packaged with tamper-resistant technology, things like blister packs, shrink wrap bottle covers, and visible seals. So, of course, everybody at the time thought Tylenol would pretty much die a slow death because of the fact that they were getting a horrible reputation in the public. But Johnson & Johnson's basically turned the tables, and they made one of the, quote, greatest comebacks since Lazarus. Now, Markle, the medical historian, calls it the biggest turnaround. Quote, the Tylenol story did change how most large corporations handle the recall issue. When they found something was wrong, it was no longer acceptable to turn your head the other way. Johnson & Johnson ran such a skillful skillful PR campaign that it became the standard case study that business school students still read today for crisis management. Quote, yeah, that's, he, he's re saying his quote there. So, you know, Johnson & Johnson saved Tylenol in part by portraying itself as a victim, a victim of an attack from a dangerous kook, as some investigators put it. The company, the police, the government, and the media started spreading the message that this was done by a madman. This is the message that was repeated every day for months and years after. And like any message repeated over and over, it stuck. So where do things stand today? Well, the short answer is nowhere. The case remains unsolved, and nobody has been held accountable. But in 2009, the FBI did release the following statement. The FBI, in cooperation with the Illinois State Police and several local police departments is conducting a complete review of all evidence developed in connection with the 1982 Tylenol murders. This review is prompted in part by the recent 25th anniversary of this crime and the resulting publicity. Further, given the many recent advances in forensic technology, it was only natural that a second look be taken at the case and recovered evidence. In addition, the recent anniversary prompted many people to call law enforcement agencies with tips relating to this crime. All these tips have been, or will be thoroughly investigated in an effort to solve this crime and bring some measure of closure to the families of the victims. To date, the review has not resulted in the filing of any criminal charges. Now, the FBI reached out again to the public uh, around the 30th anniversary. Quote, as the 30th anniversary of the 1982 Tylenol murders approaches, a task force established in 2007 continues to investigate the poisonings. The task force, which is headed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, includes investigators from the Illinois State Police, as well as the Arlington Heights, Elk Grove Village, Lombard, Schomburg, and other police departments. The task force was charged with looking at all aspects of the long, dormant investigation, including re-interviewing witnesses, computerizing all documents and exhibits, and subjecting physical evidence to new and previously unavailable forensic examinations. To date, hundreds of interviews have been conducted and several thousands of pieces of potential evidence re-examined. This task force conducting this reinvestigation is being coordinated by the FBI under the Federal Serial Murder Statute which empowers the FBI to assist local police agencies with the investigation of such case cases. As such, the task force is working in partnership with local law enforcement from the affected communities. William C. Monroe, acting special agent in charge of the Chicago FBI, noted that the task force is working tirelessly to identify the responsible 
parties for this horrific crime in an effort to bring closure to the families, friends, and the community itself. Again, the victims were Mary Kellerman, who was 12, Adam Janus, age 27, Stanley Janus, age 25, Teresa Janus, age 19. Just think about this for a second. That's ridiculous that that happened to one family. Horrible, horrible. Then there was Mary Reiner, age 27, Mary McFarland, age 31, and then Paula Prince, who was 35. All seven had been determined to have ingested the Tylenol-laced with cyanide on September 29th, 1982. It says additional information about this investigation can be found on the FBI's internet website, www.fbi.gov. Now, that sounds great, right? Well, the FBI decided to transfer the case back to the local police in September 2013. In an article from the Daily Herald from Arlington Heights, it's titled... FBI drops 1982 Tylenol Murders Task Force, local police to lead probe. The Arlington Heights Daily Herald report local agencies will work together after the FBI decided to no longer lead the investigation into the 1982 Chicago area poisonings. A message left with the FBI wasn't immediately returned, according to the Herald. A task force examining the seven deaths once had 140 members, including federal, state, and local investigations, investigators, and they were chasing down thousands of leads. But no one was ever charged. And the poison Tylenol was consumed over three days in Chicago and four suburbs. You know, October, let's see, it was September 29th and through October 1st. I mean... The fact that no one has claimed responsibility, it's really, that's kind of weird. And that's something that uh, Ross Rice, the FBI spokesperson, said. said, quote, no one has claimed responsibility and we won't know the motivation behind the crime until we identify the persons responsible. Again, the only known real suspect that had been identified in the case is that of James Lewis, who was the one that was convicted and served time for writing the extortion letter. And again, it's just, that guy is just a whack job. So again, uh, at one point, Lewis even provided detectives with sketches of how the killer could put the Tylenol or the cyanide into the Tylenol tablets. Oh, it's just one of those things. Crazy, crazy. So Johnson & Johnson, at the end of the day, removed 30 million bottles of Tylenol from the shelves in 1982 and offered a $100,000 reward, which, guess what, still stands to this day because there is no statute of limitations on murder in Illinois. And on that note, we are going to wrap up this week's episode of Who Killed? So thank you guys so much for listening. And please remember... For the second time since, well, the pandemic ruined everything with CrimeCon, I will be at the Vegas CrimeCon from April 29th to May 1st. I will be a featured podcaster on Podcast Row. If you would like to save money on your ticket, you can use my promo code WHOKILLED. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the other shows that I produce, 
you can help donate and support independent journalism by clicking on the left-hand side of Slow Burn Media. That's uh, slow minus the W. Or, hey, if you want to contribute via the Venmo app, you can do that as well at bill-huffman-3. I will also provide a link in the show notes. Now, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Every contribution helps keep these Slow Burn podcasts running. You can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to your favorite shows. Those five stars do help keep the important cases that I cover in the spotlight. And again, this case is unsolved. If you do know anything about the Chicago Tylenol murders, you can collect a $100,000 reward, so contact your local FBI or Crime Stoppers. If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered or the new shows that I have in the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter. As you know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. So, on that note, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, be healthy and stay safe. you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. 